Welcome to Wild Spaces, coming to you from Denver, Colorado, where the Great Plains meet the Rocky Mountains, where we connect you to nature, real estate, and the adventurous professionals leading us to a better designed, healthier future. So grab your notebook, sketch pad, and put your feet in the grass as we become more wild together. Welcome to episode 13 of the Wild Spaces podcast. I'm your host, Matt Dungan, and I'm excited to bring you our first ever solo show. I want to synthesize the key talking points that we've had in our first dozen episodes, expand on the driving principles and kind of core philosophy behind Wild Spaces Institute, and highlight some of the best practices that we're studying and seeing out there within commercial real estate, architecture, and design. Because we feel that we've entered sustainability's next evolution. And when I say sustainability, I'm talking about capital S, kind of formal sustainable design term. And we really feel like we've we've moved well beyond when sustainability first came into commercial real estate architecture design, largely in the 90s, around the movement and the people behind LEED, USGBC, kind of other standards that you've seen emerge. And those have really become quite commonplace for best projects that you're seeing right now. But you've really seen a drive and a recognition of many of these other themes kind of coming together that is going to push us into the next evolution of sustainability. Because the reality is, far too often, our spaces leave us uninspired and drained. There's still a lot of headwinds behind the wider spread adoption of sustainable design and sustainable principles. When I talk to my clients, customers, potential tenants, and just our friends and family, I think people understand now the impact that projects have and they understand the potential of them. And they don't quite know all the technicalities behind like the reason there's not more of adoption of kind of best in class sustainable design principles. I think the average person doesn't understand that. They just look and they realize that the spaces where they send their kids to school, where they go visit their parents, where they work and where they live are often not that inspiring. And they're certainly not up to the standard of places that people seek out on their weekends and when they vacation. I think there's really this this tremendous opportunity for the projects that we look for at Wild Spaces Institute, the work that I work on as an architect. Um, and I think all of our kind of best in class, you know, people developing the best in class projects that are out there to make sure that our work and our projects represents the next evolution of sustainability. And when I use that term, I'm really thinking of three key elements within it. The first is our projects need to move beyond just sustaining into creating positive impacts. They need to move beyond what the status quo has been, move beyond improving a little bit over a baseline, doing less bad, into projects that truly create positive, significant impacts for those around them. Um, you're seeing this in originally Living Building Challenge, this discussion of regenerative real estate, um, as we talked about on one of our earlier episodes with Neil, with Neil Collins. I think it, it's an amazing movement, and, and that mindset is there now that people understand this is the opportunity. And in order to make significant impacts on people, planet, the kind of bottom line of the next best projects, um, we're going to need to take this approach of moving beyond just sustaining into creating positive impacts with our work. Second element within the next evolution of sustainability 
is the need to meet the greater demand for transparency and accountability. Right? We live in a time now of an increased focus of everybody on accountability, openness, transparency from our companies. Right? And you, you've seen it first, when we look at transportation, right? the discussion around the impacts of vehicles and larger automobile companies, the push towards electric vehicles. It's a discussion that is in so much of the, the public discourse. And I think more on the manufacturing side, you've seen it kind of come first and foremost in outdoor recreation and outdoor retailers because their ideal clients obviously are so connected to nature and the outdoors, they expect and really demand transparency and accountability from the places where they buy their goods. They want to understand where do you get your materials? What do you do with the products at the end of their life? And I don't think construction and commercial real estate is far behind. I think you look at us as one of the largest kind of resource consuming industries that there is in the globe. Um, you know, we're certainly up there with, with transportation. And again, they look at how many people think about the impacts of that industry. And I can't see us being far behind. Now with that, there's, there is the huge opportunity to kind of harness the time, energy, money and resources that go into our industry, that go into commercial real estate to be a, a force for positive change. And the third piece within the next evolution of sustainability, and really what we'll talk about probably for the balance of this episode is biophilic design becoming a central design framework. That right now, biophilic design is starting to kind of creep into some of the standards. You're seeing it become a lot more discussed Certainly with my clients, we have, I'd say probably half of them coming in a very clear way saying, oh, I want to like restore this landscape. I want to do something that is functional. I want to create a place that connects people to nature or just straight out like I want biophilic design. Like they've seen that term and it's it's become available enough now that our clients are starting to ask for it, which is tremendously exciting. And where I see that as the next step is this isn't just a, a sub movement or a piece of design. This is the top, the overall umbrella, right? That the reasons we provide quality ventilation, great views, access to clean water, green rooftops, those things are because they all fit within this umbrella of how do we connect people to nature in a meaningful and intentional way within our projects. So biophilic design kind of takes its place as a primary design framework. What's interesting about biophilic design, just kind of brief history of it is, you know, it's a pretty young movement within architecture and real estate. You look at modernism, many of the principles that guide our design, the way we lay out sites, passive solar strategies, and other elements of sustainability and design in general that have been around for, you know, certainly a hundred years, millennia in some ways, all the way back to Vitruvius and others, kind of recognizing how we appropriately site buildings. Um, and within that, biophilic design really only came about as a term in the 80s, really started to become much more studied and you're seeing research coming out of the healthcare side in the late 80s, early 90s. So this is a, we're talking about a very young movement within overall architecture and real estate. But I think what's really resonated with people is one, like who doesn't want to be more connected to nature? I feel like, you know, I talk to people about this all the time and have yet to really come across anybody that's like, oh, that's a bad idea. Like I don't want to be more connected to nature. I'm sure it'll happen. 
Um, it'll be it'll be a fun discussion when it does. But I see that as a that's a really interesting that there's something just kind of visceral about the strength of this concept. And two, that as there has been more research and study out there around biophilic design, what's amazing is that it provides nearly universal benefits. And that cuts across market sectors, ages, cultures, scales of, of projects in real estate. Um, that as we continue to go into this era, we have a more rapidly growing body of research that you're finding the benefits and the efficacy of these specific biophilic design ingredients are really powerful and are nearly universal. So coming back to the third point, why wouldn't we design our buildings this way? And I think biophilic design occupies a really interesting intersection of many of these like movements and discussions that are going on right now. I think first and foremost of those is health and wellness won't expand a ton on it. We know it's a huge industry. We know it's a huge focus. Um, and biophilic design is, you know, is a key way to kind of bring that into our human made places. You know, related to health and wellness is the focus on human performance. I think you see, you see this coming up in the kind of life hack discussion, right? Where everybody wants to operate at peak performance. We want to learn how to maximize our creativity. We want to learn how to sleep better. You know, that whatever we're looking at, there's a movement of kind of how do we optimize that operated at a peak performance level, um, certainly for athletes and training. That's an interesting correlation of one that's, that's not talked about as much as health and wellness, but it's another place where the way we design our places does have a big impact on our ability to operate at kind of peak human performance. I think the third of these current movements that you're all that biophilic design also taps into is building performance, right? Which is what we kind of traditionally thought of as sustainability. How do we create higher performing, better buildings? Fourth topic is, is financial performance, which is one that I think we within real estate and our clients always talk about. And we spend a lot of time on understanding the performance and trying to make sure that the projects perform well financially because they have to. But it's also one that's surprisingly absent from many of the sustainable certifications and the discussion around how we design our buildings. You know, I have a current kind of retail client that really loves the concept of biophilic design connecting people to nature because they recognize that by creating a beautiful place that changes throughout the seasons that connects people to their local place, They've, got, they've made a space that people want to come to and linger and bring their friends and come back to because it's always changing and interesting. And therefore, over time, those people will inherently spend money and kind of create, make that a, a shopping destination. So it's kind of backing into how do we create financial performance within our projects through this design framework of connecting people to nature. I think the fifth of these current movements, and really the newest one on this list, is this concept of rewilding the planet and people. This grew out of conservation movement, and you're really starting to see a focus on you know, authentic travel, people wanting to you know, come close to where I live, to Rocky Mountain National Park, and just the, the amazing impact it has of seeing like large mammals, large animals out in the wild, that there's, there's such a demand for that right now. And I think there's a recognition of we at this current time, you know, want to kind of bring ourselves back to 
nature back to our place and at the same time rewild our planet, increase biodiversity. Obviously, it's very directly related to how do we create projects that are healthy, that connect people to nature, that increase biodiversity, that are, are functional landscapes. As we talked about in the episode with Omni, you know, their term working landscapes, right? That you can get so many of these benefits through biophilic design. All of those five movements are very important kind of discussions that are going on currently. Many of them have gone on for a long time. I will say that list they'd put together well before the pandemic and before COVID and you look at it now and they only make even more sense and they've become just increasingly discussed obviously over the last like you know 18 months or so i think biophilic design is a really unique position to advance all of those movements and discussions speaking of pandemic one of the places that you first saw this kind of connecting to nature implemented in a meaningful way is um, in mount sinai medical center you know they had taken obviously there was a huge stress on doctors healthcare practitioners and they had a space in one of their facilities that was essentially a storage closet that they turned into a, a break room kind of restoration room where doctors and healthcare practitioners could go take i think it was 30 or 45 minutes and just kind of unplug recharge um, and it's no surprise that that space was designed completely around biophilic design principles. The sense of it and the videos that were on the wall and there's plants within the space and there's wood materials and so many of these like <clears throat> forms and patterns and ingredients of biophilic design were present there. No surprise, but what was really shocking I think even to them was that both in physiological analysis and in self-reported studies, the impacts of just their doctors spending 30 minutes within this room were profound. You know, they self-reported feeling less stressed, feeling more recharged, ready to go back to work in a better mood. And physiologically, when they analyzed them, that those that showed to be the case as well. You know, lower blood pressure, you know, lower resting heart rate. I think that was, that for me was one that was kind of early during the pandemic that you saw as a very just great justification of why this is such an important way to design our spaces. Another really strong example that we talked about with uh, Molly Meyer from Omni Ecosystems was their headquarters in South Chicago. They, they moved into a former warehouse manufacturing facility, built a, a beautiful like working landscape green roof on the top of it, and have seen benefits on just the satisfaction of their workforce, a tremendous increase in biodiversity, not just on their own rooftop, but on pollinators and other things that then surround a couple mile radius. So it's like these projects are, are kind of improving their surroundings as well. I also think they're a great example because, again, in this idea of the next evolution of sustainability, we've moved beyond just like, here's a green roof for the sake of being a green roof, which is like a sea of sedum. You just kind of put it up there. Okay, done, check the box. Um, but the opportunity now with these new best-in-class projects is this is a, a rooftop that has like 400 species of plants on it that creates, you know, insulates the building, treats stormwater, is a space for migratory birds, can create edible landscapes within them. There's so many more benefits that we're learning how to get from our projects these days. You know, they had an example where they, they installed 
kind of edible landscapes on the rooftop of the Indiana Pacers training facility. And it's become a huge retention and kind of tool for, for that organization when people come and you're able to train there and some of the food that you're eating is like literally grown on top of the building, um, which is very distinct for a sports organization. So kudos to them. Uh, but again, taps into this idea of these aren't just you're putting a green roof on for one benefit. There's so much more that we're, that we're learning how to do with that. I think another property that we talked about all the way back on episode one um, is the One Hotel brand. I'm thinking we talked about the South Beach property and their one in Brooklyn is just a absolutely beautiful property. Amazing lobby. I don't know anybody that I've shown their photo of their lobby of that hotel to that doesn't want to go there and hang out there. Um, and that's the power of, you know, that one hotel brand has done a tremendous job of putting, connecting people with nature at the forefront of their messaging and their design and has had a lot of success that's come from it. Another example of this next evolution of sustainability is what we talked about with Colin Cavodi on his episode. He has a product, he runs a company called Biome, it's out of Oakland, California, and one of their primary products is called Taiga, which when you look at it is is a living wall, but it's far, far beyond that. What he's created is really like an intelligent robot that grows plants in a variety of places. So particularly focused on the indoors, so it's got integrated grow lighting, kind of water management, monitors the air quality, has recirculating fans within it. So you're talking about a very kind of smart piece of hardware as well. And where they've seen really widespread adoption for this, this was, just struck me a lot, is within kind of corporate conference rooms or large meeting spaces. Because the reality is, you know, we send... You know, we send our leadership or big teams into these enclosed indoor rooms to make very important kind of long range decisions about the direction of our companies. And, you know, within there, everybody's obviously breathing, kind of exhaling CO2. Um, the average human exhales about 2.3 pounds of CO2 every day. So you get enough people in there. And what the research would show is that in many of those conference rooms or meeting spaces, in less than 15 minutes, the CO2s at levels that are five to six times higher than what's naturally occurring outdoors. And the impact of that, the Harvard study showed, is that we're operating at, in some cases, a 50% reduced cognitive function because of that level of CO2. So we've got this strange situation where, you know, the spaces that we're going to make these very important decisions in and have meetings and we want to be at our peak performance are actually having the exact opposite effect on us. So you look at a project like Ty product like Taiga, you put a few of these within the space. Again, they're actively kind of monitoring CO2, circulating air, monitoring the humidity and the lighting conditions. Um, and they're able to have a substantial effect on the quality of the air within those spaces, which translates into the quality of the people in those spaces, cognitive function. Another cool example, and I'll, I'll post this photo into the show notes on the blog. So you can go to wildspacesinstitute.org slash blog and kind of check out the show notes for this episode 13. And I'll have this beautiful photo there. But the one I'm thinking of is within the Shard, which is a tall office building in London in the UK. And they have this concept of winter gardens. And it's one that we're really seeing gain a lot of traction, at least in discussions with clients in the US and other places. And the winter garden is 
basically a, a kind of expanded double facade where you've got your insulated exterior envelope. Within that, you have essentially a, a room or a balcony that has a single glazed interior piece. So it's able to open up when the weather's nice and you want it. It can completely open up to the outdoors, stay separate off from the interiors, and your envelope kind of moves in behind that space. And it feels like an outdoor room. And other times if the weather is not great or it's at night or it's too hot or too cold, you can close it off and it functions just like any other indoor kind of meeting space. But it has that ability to flex and not just have a window, but be a place that feels like you're very much outside, even though you're in an office building or you're very much inside and you've got great lighting kind of views out. So it's a it's an interesting, very flexible take of how do we connect people to nature and their place within kind of modern offices, especially in urban areas. I think the last kind of example that, that's been on my mind lately that I wanted to highlight is um, from the repositioning of the Willis Tower in Chicago, uh, the owner's EQ office. And this one, what I love about it is it's, it's a less literal approach to how do we connect people to nature, right? It's not just about like, let's put physical plants within the lobbies or create views out to a green roof or things like that. Um, but within their art program, which is, is significant in the Willis Tower, um, two of the main pieces really have this like dynamic aspect where they, they're tapping into people's kind of visceral understanding of the natural world. Within the lobby, there's a peak by Jacob Hashimoto that's an abstracted cloud form that moves and catches the light and just completely changes in how it looks throughout the day. It's a very organic cloud shape. Um, and I think it, it's, it's beautiful within that space. Similarly, on the exterior of the project, Olafur Eliasson did, did a piece, I forget the name of it, um, but it also itself is kind of colored in blues and greens and this kind of natural palette. So it's, it's beautiful on its own, but it's curved in a way that it, it catches the sky. So it's also a piece that's incredibly dynamic that relates to the light conditions, whether it's cloudy, whether it's sunny, um, and it changes kind of every time you look at it and you walk by it. So I think those are other really successful examples that we've seen lately uh, within the commercial office space, you know, at a large scale, I was with the, the Willis Tower, the former Sears Tower, that I think were very successful in kind of how do you bring like the patterns and the interest and the engagement with the natural world into what are largely static places. So I hope that's shared excited for me to kind of share a little bit of what's what's in my head and kind of where i see the next evolution of sustainability going why i think meaningfully connect connecting people to nature biophilic design sits at the core of that and we are excited to continue to bring you more stories about that and expiring examples of it in this podcast and through our work at the wild spaces institute thank you for listening to the wild spaces podcast this is your host, Matt Dungan, saying I hope you're feeling a little more wild and inspired. Continue your journey to connect people with nature through design at wildspacesinstitute.org. And subscribe to the Wild Spaces podcast on your favorite podcast listening platform.